All right, welcome to the State of the Lakers presented by Dash Radio. Thank you guys so much for coming to hang out on a Wednesday. I wanted to use today as an opportunity to take a first look at the trade market for the Lakers, which as always is is full of conflict this time of year because of the strange, you know, need for people outside of the Lakers fan base to minimize the role that the Lakers play in the trade deadline. Like, I mean, I think people have to understand here that there's always a massive chasm between what people think a player is going to get traded for and what they actually get traded for, which is something that I've, I've uh, you know, pointed out many times over the course of the last couple of weeks as it pertains to the Jeremy Grant discussions. But today I, I want to divide the trade targets into three categories, what I would call dream scenarios, players that would be monumental to the Lakers raising their talent and raising their ceiling, but might be somewhat unlikely, not completely impossible, but somewhat unlikely. And then the second category we'll look at are more likely scenarios, players that the Lakers absolutely could get if they wanted to. And that would absolutely make some sort of improvement to the roster. And then lastly, just kind of like fringe type of trades. Think of these as as like minimum contract for minimum contract type of deals where, you know, maybe flipping players that haven't necessarily fit into what the Lakers are trying to do into somebody who's also flawed, but that might fit a little bit better. So I wanted to start with Jeremy Grant. Now, the example that I want to use to kind of, you know, reflect what I'm trying to say as it pertains to trade value is Aaron Gordon last year. So for starters, I think Aaron Gordon is a better basketball player than Jeremy Grant. Jeremy Grant's a little more skilled, um, but in the, in the sense of what he would look like next to superstars on a contender trying to fill a role, his offensive package that he brings to the table, there's a little bit of a diminishing return there playing alongside other superstars. And that's where the defensive gap starts to show. Now, Jeremy Grant is a good perimeter defensive player. We've all seen him do a decent job guarding perimeter superstars. However, Aaron Gordon is a very good perimeter defensive player. So when you're talking about adding a player like that to you know, a contender, a guy like Aaron Gordon is just a better ceiling-raising type of player you know, uh, alongside superstars. We haven't really had an opportunity to see that as a result of the Jamal Murray injury. And now he's been slotted in a weird position where they need him to do more. And some of his shortcomings are showing, but he's an example of a player like Jeremy Grant this year, where there was a desire to add him to a contender to try to raise their ceiling. And then go look at what Aaron Gordon went for salary filler, basically, the half decent young prospect, one first round pick that was protected. You know, there was a lot of talk about what Aaron Gordon might have gone for. There were a lot of names thrown out, but then when push came to shove, everyone got gun shy, which happens all the time in the NBA. General managers get gun shy and then they don't pull the trigger. Look at last year with Kyle Lowry, you know, like we all thought the Lakers would absolutely send THT to Toronto for Kyle Lowry. Right. I mean, it's, Kind of seemed like a no-brainer. But then when push came to shove, they, they hung on to him. Now, this year, the Lakers are desperate. And that's why I, I consider them to be a legitimate threat for some of these scenarios that I'm laying out in the dream scenarios category. Because the Lakers, that THT, Kendrick Nunn, and that 2027 first package, that absolutely is on the table. I have no doubt that they would pull the trigger if they needed to in that case. Whereas some of these teams... Yeah, they talk about how they might, 
but it doesn't really seem likely. So I'll, I'll give two examples. So for instance, Washington, that was the team that was reported in the uh, uh, Bleacher Report article yesterday as the front runner for the team most likely to get Jeremy Grant. But like when you really look at Washington, you've got Bradley Beal pending unrestricted free agent. And they, even if they add Jeremy Grant, even if they added Jeremy Grant for nothing, which they would have to send out, you know, assets in the deal, even if they got Jeremy Grant for nothing, you're probably still looking at the sixth or seventh best team in the East, maybe fifth, if you're being super optimistic. So it's like, what would be the point if you're Washington to cash in a bunch of assets that directly affect your future to become a, just a little bit better mediocre team that loses in the first or second round. And then Bradley Beal finally looks in the mirror and goes, yeah, I'm sick of losing. I'm out of here. And now you've given up a bunch of assets and now you're basically where the Detroit Pistons are right now with Jeremy Grant running your offense. So again, Washington might be the favorite, but would you guys be completely shocked if all of a sudden he, you know, the, the, the Wizards backed out at the last second and went, eh, never mind, this isn't a good idea. Same thing goes with Chicago. Like Patrick Williams is a much better prospect, much better asset than Taylor Horton Tucker is. So it's a much more significant ask for Detroit to give him up. Or excuse me, for Chicago to give him up. So again, you know, if you're Chicago and you're like, man, we're playing really good basketball right now. And Patrick Williams could like, we're not like, we're playing really good basketball, but we're probably not going to win the title. I've got Alex Caruso who's developing offensively. I've got Lonzo ball. who's taken a leap. I've got DeMar DeRozan. Who's an older guy, but he looks really, really good. And Zach Levine is still on the way up. Why would I cash in for this season when theoretically in the future, Patrick Williams could fit into that four spot and actually make us a lot better in the next couple of years when we actually have a chance to try to win the title. And so again, that's where I look at that and I go like, okay, Chicago might have called Detroit and said, Hey, like, what about Patrick Williams? But when push comes to shove, are they actually going to do it? I don't know. And, and especially when you look at their salary situation, we have reporting that says that Jeremy Grant wants a lot of money. He wants a lot of money and he wants uh, to have the ball in his hands on a team that already has guys that want to do that. So again, with those two scenarios, those are the two teams that get thrown out as like really potential trade destinations for Jeremy Grant. I could make a really compelling case for why both of those teams would back out at the last second. So that doesn't mean the Lakers are going to get Jeremy Grant. What it means is don't count them out. They have a, a long shot chance to make something like that happen, which is exactly what Zach Lowe reported on his podcast a couple of weeks ago. And it was funny because the way he reported it was kind of just through making some sort of logical progression while he was recording the podcast. He's like, yeah, the Lakers don't really have much of a chance. And then towards the end, he's like, wait, actually, what if all these teams back out? Okay, wait, yeah, THT, that might be the best package. And that's just the reality. That's just the reality of the way these trade deadline situations work. The truth is, is these players end up going for not much. Now, as far as Jeremy Grant goes, I've seen people talk about the, uh, uh, the concept of, of, of his ball dominance and whether or not that fits with the Lakers. I'm not worried about that at all. Because Anthony Davis is not a perimeter initiator. 
And Russell Westbrook is very much not in the long-term plans of the Lakers. I sure as hell hope not. So I look at it from the standpoint of like, if I was LeBron and the trade was possible, meaning Detroit was seriously considering the THT offer, I'd be blowing up Jeremy Grant's phone being like, hey man, I'm giving you the basketball. I'm also going to have the basketball, but hey, in the modern NBA, we're taking turns at this thing. And you're going to get plenty of touches. You're going to get plenty of opportunity. I'm not, I'm not worried about that side of things at all. Now, there's a whole other money element to it. Like, I think if you take on Jeremy Grant and extend him, then you probably have to get rid of Russell Westbrook in the, in the summer. So you might have to, you know, to try to figure out a way to make that happen. But I'm not worried about Jeremy Grant's long-term fit here. That's not something that concerns me. Now, the, the one thing that was pointed out to me in a discussion that I had with my guy, Roosh, from Houston he had mentioned like, hey, it's a little bit more of a seller's market this year. And that's true. There are more buyers than there are sellers this year, which may not have been the case last year. And maybe that ends up being the thing that drives up the price on Jeremy Grant, especially since he's kind of at the top of this class, this trade season. That might be the wrinkle here that turns things in, uh, you know, in the favor of, of, of the Lakers being out of the equation. But I would not count the Lakers out. I think he's absolutely a possibility. I think he should be their top target. I think he should be their number one option. And if they could figure that move out, that's when you start to get really excited about some of these small small ball groups that the Lakers could put out. Any front court going against LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Jeremy Grant is going to be at a significant disadvantage, even a team like the Milwaukee Bucks. It's just too much athleticism. It's too much versatility. It's too much offense. That, that, that's a really exciting prospect. So <clears throat> the second player that I have under my dream scenarios list is Harrison Barnes. So Harrison Barnes is less athletic than Jeremy Grant. I think that's the key difference. I think, I think Harrison Barnes is a little bit more of like a rigid and fundamental basketball player, while Jeremy Grant has a little more of that shiftiness and a little bit more of that, you know, uh, like I, I would call it like offensive creativity, the, just the, the ability to, have more explosive offensive nights. Uh, I think he's, I think he is a little bit better in that regard. That said, Harrison Barnes is not a bad option. And most importantly, at this phase in his career, he doesn't have the same ego issues that Jeremy Grant has in terms of what he wants uh, from his role on a team. And he has a ton of experience in a role player position alongside superstars, including with Golden State. Now, I know a lot of people are going to point to you know, the 2016 finals and be like, Oh, I don't want that guy. But Hey, at this point in his career, he's just, he's just been through enough of those moments that he's a little bit more, you know, comfortable. And most importantly, that kind of thing can happen to anybody. You're insane. If you don't think Jeremy Grant could also have a cold shooting playoff series, especially with his lack of playoff experience. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that at all. Now, the, the nice thing with the Harrison Barnes concept is he, he might end up being unavailable anyway. If the, if the Kings end up making this trade for, uh, ben Simmons and Tobias Harris that's been thrown around, although there's some reporting that Daryl Moore is not interested in what the Kings have to offer. But if, if it turns into a situation where the Kings are just trading Harrison Barnes straight up to somebody to try to get some assets because he's in that second position behind Jeremy Grant, that gives the Lakers an opportunity. You know, like if all the big hitters that are actually throwing assets on the table, allegedly, if they actually do, then the Lakers would have a better chance at that second option. And I, Harrison Barnes brings a lot of the things that I was talking about with Jeremy Grant in terms of imp- the, uh, the, some of the ceiling and some of the lineups that the Lakers can throw out there. The third dream scenario I put together 
this one is kind of complicated. And I would say this is probably the least likely of any of the trades that I put together here would be a package built around Russell Westbrook, Taylor Horton Tucker, Kendrick Nunn, and probably one other minimum contract for Tobias Harris and, and Ben Simmons. Now, it's a long shot for a lot of reasons. Why? Because Russell Westbrook's value is at an all-time low. So that's certainly the case. Now, the only reason the door is cracked is because Tobias Harris is also at an all-time low in terms of value. He's on this maximum contract with a ton of years left. It's one of those situations where even if you looked at it purely from the standpoint of contracts, the Sixers could generate some flexibility by flipping a long-term max contract for a shorter-term Supermax contract. Now, obviously, Tobias Harris, even with his struggles, even with him massively underperforming relative to his contract, I think he's a better basketball player than Russell Westbrook. I, as I've talked about a lot, I think Russell Westbrook has entered into a phase of his career where he used to make 15 good plays for every 10 bad plays. He's more like seven or eight good plays for every 10 bad plays. And I don't think he's really much of a positive player at this point in his career. So, that's probably going to scare everybody away. Tobias Harris, he's overpaid. He's way over his skis as a max player. However, he's a win. He can shoot the ball, put the ball on the floor, do some really low-level playmaking, and can guard multiple positions. <clears throat> that automatically makes him an easy plug-in in any lineup. I don't have to even think about whether or not Tobias Harris would fit and contribute with the Lakers. He absolutely would. So that kind of ends up being the, the wrinkle there that might make this not work. However, <clears throat> under the circumstances where the Sixers potentially internally could be thinking hard about getting off of Tobias, that's what kind of keeps this door cracked. Now, the only thing that could swing the door open and make the deal happen, in my opinion, would be Joel Embiid. So over the course of the last half decade, Joel Embiid and Russ have had a lot of really loud battles against each other. They've had a lot of games where the two of them have gone at it, and typically Russ has won especially a few years back. So it's possible, just like just like LeBron James had an elevated sense of value of what Russell Westbrook was that I think he probably regrets now, Embiid might have that same situation. Embiid might be sitting on his couch going, man, I'd love to play with Russ. I'd rather have him than some of these younger guards I'm playing with. He's going to be able to run pick and roll with me and get me better shots. He, you know, open, he, you know we all know Joel Embiid likes to take threes. That, that's another kind of angle there that opens up the door to that fit working a little bit better. And most importantly, that team doesn't have playmaking. One of the big reasons why the Lakers kind of don't need what Russ brings to the table is they have better playmaking options. You know, a team, a team like Philly, it's the same problem talking, the same problem I talk about with Boston a lot. They don't have guys that are good at creating shots for other people. Now, Russ at this phase in his career is bad at a lot of things, in my opinion, but there's one thing that he's still good at, and it's the primary source of his good plays. He generates rim pressure, and inherently that rim pressure generates open shots for his teammates, which is something that, you know, like we say, is a very rare skill in the league. It's that playmaking ability, that ability to not just look out for yourself, but rather make plays for your teammates. It's kind of a rare deal in the NBA. He's not great at it, he certainly isn't great at it, like we've talked about, but it's something that he still does well, even at this phase in his career. So you can see a situation where maybe Joel Embiid talks himself into like, hey, Russ is the man. I would love to play with him. Let me go down to Daryl Morey's office and put some pressure on him 
and and see if we can't make this happen. And, you know, the other angle there, too, is what if the market surrounding Ben Simmons just cools in general because all the teams out there don't necessarily want to pay. And then here comes some pressure from Joel Embiid, like, hey, I'm sick of playing my ass off here while Ben Simmons sits at home and we have all of our talent and all of our you know salary tied up in this guy who's not even on the court. Daryl, like, stop screwing around and make this happen. So that would be the, like I said, super long shot, but that would be an interesting deal where you could see just, like, if a couple of chips fall the right way or maybe it could potentially happen. Uh, again, long shot, but I, I wanted to put it on my list. The last one I had for dream scenarios was Christian Wood. So <clears throat> Christian Wood's a really interesting player because he brings a lot of perimeter versatility for a big. Now, at this point, even though he's a very good athlete and he has a lot of size, he's not a great defensive player, which I think would scare contenders away from him in a lot of ways. However, there are going to be teams out there that are going to look at him and be like, man, this would be an interesting young prospect to throw some assets at and see if we can make this happen. Now, if in that scenario, those teams are probably going to be willing to pay more than the Lakers are going to be willing to pay for a player like Christian Wood. But the way I look at it in the long shot scenario is – if that market cools and no other deals materialize, it's an interesting option to add size to the Lakers while also maintaining some of that five out identity. I think Christian Wood's ability to shoot the basketball, he's at, at 37% on four attempts over his last three seasons, which is pretty good for a big player. He can do a little bit of closeout attacking, like he can put the ball on the floor and make some plays. He's definitely not someone you want doing that a lot, but it's something that he can do. And it's an interesting option to add size, add athleticism, fix some of the issues with the Lakers small ball lineups being too small while also maintaining some of that, uh, uh, some of that, you know, uh, um, five out concept. And then, you know, he also brings some of that upside. The Lakers have a lot tied up in the current generation, right? Like we have a lot tied up, in Anthony Davis, we have a lot tied up in LeBron and even with Russ. But Christian Wood gives you a little bit of that. I can have one foot in the moment with a productive player while also potentially having a prospect to, for the future. Now, Christian Wood could always be a good stats, bad team guy for the rest of his career. That's certainly possible. But it's also possible that he develops into a uh, decent, productive, you know, big man who can contribute to a championship team. That's all possible. All right, let's move on to the more likely trade scenarios. The first one that I have on my list is Miles Turner. So I would have put him in the, you know, dream scenarios category before the foot injury, because I think you would have had a lot more teams willing to vie for his services. And that lack of desperation that most teams are operating under would probably cause them to pull the plug on any offer there based on that stress fracture. Stress fractures are weird. I actually had one between my first and second season playing in college. And it's weird because like I came back in two months, but then I still had pain in my foot for like the first half of the season. It was kind of a problem. I kind of came back too soon. It very easily could have been something that I re-injured, especially with big guys. It gets even more freaky. It's one of those things where you're, you, you take a couple weeks off and maybe you start playing again and it just gets worse like it's, it's one of those things that could scare some people away, which drops his value to the point where I think the Lakers suddenly become a team that could potentially get him. Now, it gets tricky because I would want to hold Miles out for at least a month. 
So now we're talking about a player that can't play till middle, late February. And it becomes one of those things where do you feel like cashing in assets like THT, like Hendrick Nunn to then have a player come back that can't play for a little while. That is a, certainly a concern there. The other concern that I have with Miles Turner is just the identity fit piece, because while he does shoot the ball well from the perimeter, he's not like Christian Wood in the sense that he's not a great closeout attacker. So it's hard to imagine him thriving in a five out concept. It would be more of like a traditional type of concept. And then obviously that would be Frank's dream because then Frank could basically lean all the way back into his, you know, traditional pick and roll coverages and his traditional style that he'd love to use in 2020. So it's, it's a, it's a dream in that, in that respect for Frank, I just worry about it from an identity standpoint. Like we're leaning heavily at this point in the season to trying to learn five out basketball to trying to learn small ball. And so why would we do that for another month, month and a half? And then suddenly late February, early March, like be like, okay, let's switch it up again. Here comes miles Turner. We're going giant and we're playing LeBron at the three AD at the four miles Turner at the five. That's just tough. And with the Lakers team that struggled so much with continuity this year and the ability to take on a style and just stick with it for a while until you get good at it, I think that would be some some form of self-sabotage to bring a guy like that in and then to tr- just change up your entire identity and style again in, in the middle of the season. So I see both sides there, but he's certainly a, a, a possible option. And I do like the versatility that he brings. It's, it's a move that I could talk myself into being a good move, even if it's not my favorite. So the second trade that I have on my more likely list is the trade that our friend uh, Krangis, um pointed out in recent weeks going after Kenridge Williams and Mike Muscala. Now, the nice part about this type of trade is it's not forfeiting assets. You probably can get that deal done with like, Kendrick Nunn in a second round pick, right? So that's exciting in the sense that you have the potential to improve the team while not giving anything up and maintaining those assets potentially for next summer. So that part is exciting. Now, this certainly isn't much of a ceiling raising trade. I don't really see Mike Mascala's value much at all. One of the things that Crane just pointed out is that his shooting in LA was a huge outlier. And I tend to agree with that. Something to keep in mind, like bad basketball teams have a hard time generating quality shots. And that team, when Mike Muscala was playing as a result of all the injuries, just wasn't very good. So he wasn't getting high quality shots and and every team plays hard against the Lakers. So it wasn't like they were getting poor effort out of their opponents. It was just a tough, that, that whole season was just tough. So I'm willing to give him a pass in that regard. But the more exciting thing to me would be Kenrich Williams. So the Lakers have had a lack of forwards. That's been an issue all year long. Kenrich Williams is not a very good basketball player, but he's another player that kind of fits into that Stanley Johnson archetype. I would say he's significantly less athletic and a little bit smaller, but he is still a good athlete and he shoots the ball better. So it's kind of like a variation of Stanley Johnson. That's a little bit better of a spot up threat, but doesn't bring all of the same things that Stanley brings to the table, but it's another big forward to have off the bench that buys you some depth that buys you some versatility on the wing gives you more options in those small ball lineups to have switchy wings on the perimeter that can hold their own offensively. So again, that's a, that's a 
fringe move, like let's say all these other deals don't materialize, but you're still looking to improve the team somehow. Well, hey, like Kendrick Nunn hasn't even played a minute for us. What if we could flip him into an end-of-the-bench shooter that we can use on some nights and some matchups and another forward that could certainly be on the fringe of our rotation as a big guy that can play, big wing that can play in our small ball lineup. So I thought that one was interesting. Um, The last one that I have on my more likely list is Eric Gordon. So this is the one that drives Lakers fans crazy because they think that he's not good anymore. And rightfully so, they have their eyes on bigger targets, right? Like we all are looking at the Jeremy Grants and the Harrison Barnes types. Like I get that. But Eric Gordon is a very possible outcome. It's a, it's a trade that the Lakers absolutely can be in the hunt for. And it's a decent fallback option. Now, I look at Eric Gordon as kind of like a, a, a massive upgrade on the THT position in the, current, uh, like in the current timeline. Now, if I'm describing THT's potential outcomes, like what kind of player he could become one day, I think it kind of ranges from an Eric Gordon all the way up to like a Drew Holiday, meaning like his ceiling, like the kind of player he could become if everything goes right is like a Drew Holiday. But it's extremely realistic to think that THT, by the time he's in his late 20s, early 30s, could be an Eric Gordon type, you know, a guy who brings who's a little bit undersized on the wing, but is built like a truck, has, you know, a super low center of gravity that makes him very difficult to move off of his spot who's very good defensively. And I, as I've said on the show many times, I think THT projects to eventually be a good shooter, even if he isn't yet. Now, Eric Gordon immediately coming out of college, immediately coming out of Indiana was already a good shooter. So it's not like their timelines are the same or anything like that. But I look at Eric Gordon as like a similar concept of like, Hey, what if we could take THT, but make him a veteran? You know, that's kind of the way I look at it now with his size, it would be an issue. Eric Gordon would become an issue if Frank continued to stay too small at the guard position. Like if Frank's plan is to play Russ Avery Bradley and, uh, and Eric Gordon, then yeah, I'm with you guys. That's a stupid idea, but it's also a stupid idea to do the same thing with Malik Monk there, which is something he's been doing anyway. So the way I look at it is like in the future where Anthony Davis is back and Frank finally leans on using some of these small forwards, the way he talked about in the preseason, a la, Ariza in the starting lineup, as long as we look at it from that perspective, his size is actually beneficial. I look at it as like Eric Gordon as the fifth guy in a lineup that includes LeBron, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, and a Trevor Ariza or an Austin Reeves or a Stanley Johnson. In those lineups, I think Eric Gordon's size is fine. He's got a ton of playoff experience. He's hit a ton of big playoff shots. He has a ton of, uh, of he has a long resume of causing problems for people as a perimeter defender in the playoffs, including what he's done to Donovan Mitchell. He can chase over the top of screens the way that Frank wants him to in our scheme. Again, I understand some of the pessimism there because there are better options available. But if the Lakers ended up falling back on Eric Gordon, I think it's one of those deals where we could be looking in a playoff series you know, in April and, and looking at a lineup on the floor, watching the Lakers go on a run in a big moment and being like, man, Eric Gordon's making some plays out there. You know, I, I, I tend to think that, that he would still be a, a good option. So <clears throat> the last concept that I wanted to look at was this veteran minimum swap type of concept. Now, it's hard to really gauge 
what these deals would look like um, because it's hard to gauge what types of veteran minimum players are available. But I'll give you one example of the type of deal I'm looking, I'm talking about. This is a deal that I think Laker fans would hate, but I think would be more, you know, beneficial to what our identity, uh, what our identity would be moving down the line. So Malik Monk, Malik Monk has been unbelievable offensively as of late. Uh, although he's coming off of a, a, a short stretch here where he hasn't shot the ball as well. You know, Malik Monk, when he was in that group against the Jazz, when we had LeBron and Austin Reeves and Stanley Johnson and THT on the floor, he was okay defensively. Why? Because the entire unit was bought in. They were switching everything, so he didn't have to fight over the top of screens or anything like that. And just because of the aggregate defensive talent surrounding him, he was functional as a two guard in that lineup. Right. But for the most part, over the course of the last couple months, coinciding with his offensive explosion, he's been our worst defensive player, like really, 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 really bad. Something I've been talking about a lot on the pod lately. So as good as Malik Monk is, and I think his value, I think he's played himself into a situation where his value uh, uh, massively exceeds what his contract number is. That said, it's also, you know, I'm of the opinion that if the Lakers, you know, were to flip him for a similar type of player on a minimum contract that better fits what their identity is as a switching team that needs to defend well, even though it would be hard for Laker fans to accept because of how good Malik Monk has been playing offensively, it could make the team better. So the one example I wanted to give is a trade with the Oklahoma City Thunder for Lou Dort. Now, you might think that's absolutely crazy and both teams might be not at all interested, but I wanted to use it as just an example of the type of trade I'm talking about. Lou Dort, I don't think he's necessarily even as good of a basketball player as Malik Monk, probably not close, but on a Laker team that when fully healthy, doesn't need Malik Monk's offense as much on a fully healthy Laker team. That's going to lean heavily on LeBron James in big moments on Anthony Davis in big moments, you know, on in that scenario where Malik Monk is going to be more relegated to spot up shooting where Malik Monk is going to be more dependent on defensively. It's possible that in that scenario, a player of Lou Dort's archetype actually makes the Lakers better. I know that's hard to imagine, but if you think forward to, cause he's, he's kind of like a high volume three point shot guy that doesn't shoot especially well, kind of like that, Kyle Kuzma type of archetype in the sense that he gets them up, but they tend to not go in. However, really aggressive three-point shooters, even when they don't shoot well, tend to have a certain amount of gravity just because it's what shows up in the scouting report. That was the thing with Kuzma. Like Kuzma didn't shoot the ball amazingly well when he was with the Lakers, but teams guarded him out there because they knew he would shoot it. And on any given night, he could get hot and make six out of eight and it could swing a game. And Lou Dort's kind of that same type of player in terms of a spot-up threat. But he is amazing defensively. He is a flat-out weapon to have against some of the bigger wings in the league. He's an amazing option to have in those scenarios. And adding him to the roster in place of someone like Malik Monk, even though it might hurt you in the regular season short term, right now with Anthony Davis out because they're leaning so heavily on Malik Monk, I could see in a playoff scenario down the line when the team is fully healthy – I could see a player like Lou Dort kind of being just a better fit. And if you're Oklahoma City and you're building for the future and you're like, wait, 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 we might get 
Malik Monk, this kid who's been playing so well. Maybe we can develop him more as uh, as a uh, a physical specimen, put some muscle on him. Maybe he becomes a better defensive player and he becomes a good backcourt partner for Shea Gilgis Alexander. Like I could see Oklahoma City talking themselves into that as well. Now, even if it's not Dort, even if it's not Monk, these are the kinds of deals I'm talking about. Trying to flip, I talked about this concept with the rush trade, flipping junk for junk. Like this is a player that on our team is junk. And on your team, you have a player that you guys kind of view as junk. But maybe if we swap them because our identities are different, they'll fl- they'll fit better into our concept. So I use the Monk Dort deal as just like an idea of what I'm talking about. But essentially what I'm asking is the Lakers to consider flipping veteran minimum pieces that haven't worked for us for veteran minimum pieces that haven't worked elsewhere that might fit better with our identity in the direction we're trying to go as a team. So that's kind of the way I look at it. I, like I said, from the beginning, I wouldn't hold the Lakers. I wouldn't count the Lakers out in any trade scenario where the salaries match, just because of the fact that you never know how much GMs are willing to pay. And also you guys don't know how much GMs value players. I know it's kind of one of those deals where, you know, THT has become the butt of a joke because he played so poorly for a stretch this season. But guys, THT is is still a prospect that carries value around the league. In his last six games, he's averaging 13 points on 60% true shooting while also having a great deal of defensive impact. He had a couple of huge defensive moments against Donovan Mitchell in that game against the Jazz. He still flashes a lot of that potential. It's not unreasonable to think that just because Twitter doesn't think THT is good, that the GM of such and such NBA team thinks he's good. They, there are absolutely going to be GMs in the league that think highly of THT or more highly of him than the rest of Twitter does. So I hope people acknowledge that reality when they're talking about this kind of stuff, because it certainly is a factor. All right, that's all I had for today, guys. This is going to be on Dash Radio tomorrow morning. Actually, tonight's postgame show will be on Dash Radio tomorrow morning. I'll find some other time to air this one. Uh, This will be in our podcast feed here in about a half an hour. As always, we appreciate your guys' support. We broke our daily record for downloads again after that Jazz game. I, I, I appreciate you guys hanging with us because this team has been so frustrating for so long. And you can actually see just an interest and not even just with you guys, with me, like, man, when we were, when we all had COVID, when the whole team had COVID, I was having a hard time being enthusiastic about watching some of those games when it's like a fake basketball team in the middle of the season. So I get it. I do, but hopefully this jazz game is the start of a far more interesting and successful Lakers run. And, and hopefully we can all have some, some fun covering it together, but thank you guys as always for your support. And we will see you tonight right after the final buzzer against Indiana.